You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Luke Osborne. He's a postdoc at Johns Hopkins University. He's in the Applied Physics Department, but we're going to be talking about his work um, in prosthetics um, in regards to phantom limb and allowing people with prosthetics to actually be able to feel in some sense. So, Luke, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. Doing pretty well. Yeah, if you don't mind, tell me about your work with the... you know, first of all, what's the problem of phantom limb for people that don't know? And then let's talk about your work there. Yeah. Yeah. So I work um, primarily with upper limb amputees. And um, a lot of times somebody who's had an amputation, you know, they've lost part of their limb or their entire limb. Um, they they have these retained sensations of their limb. that's not there anymore. And we call that a phantom limb. So, um you know, somebody might have an injury or something will happen where they need their limb amputated and they'll have the, they'll go through the procedure, but, you know, maybe for several years or even up to the rest of their lives, they, they have this perception of the limb that's not there anymore um, and they can still feel it. And a lot of times they can still move it around and things like that. So that's what we would call a, a phantom limb sensation. Somebody who's had an amputation, but is experiencing some sensation of the limb that they don't have anymore. What do you mean move it around? I mean, I could see if you had sensation, but like what the person moves it around in their mind, I mean, what happens? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of interesting to think about. So um, it's really similar to how you might think about moving your own hand around. So say say you um, are just moving your wrist back and forth. Um, a lot of times an amputee will still be able to um, think about those types of movements and think about moving their phantom hand and the muscles that you would generally use to, to move your arm around, a lot of them still exist in the arms of the amputee, um, even if their hand isn't there. So what happens is, when they think about moving their phantom limb, or in this case, the phantom hand, you can 
actually activate the muscles that used to connect to that hand. Um, and then the amputee is in a way feeling like their phantom limb is moving. Have you ever tried an experiment where, um, you know, someone has uh, an amputated hand and you have a, a, a basketball and you pretend to like throw it at them so they'd have to instinctively reach up the block and have you recorded brain oh. signals in doing that? Interesting. No, no, I haven't, but that'd be a really interesting um, type of experiment, you know, or to really explore what, what exactly is going on, you know, in the brain when you do something like that. That's an interesting question. You know, if you tell them to imagine like you're about to touch a stove and someone goes, don't do that, it's hot, you know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I mean, you can, um, so it's interesting. My work pertains um, a lot of the time to sensory feedback to amputees. And to your point about, um, you know, seeing the way they react to something, if you were to, to do some action, you can actually get uh, get somebody to experience what's called embodiment of a prosthetic limb. So part of our work in um, improving prosthetic limb technology in general involves trying to make something that's a little bit more lifelike. And we've, you know, looked at ways we can give sensory feedback, but an interesting component of all of that is what's called embodiment or prosthesis embodiment. So if you were to give an amputee a prosthetic arm, ideally they'd be able to use it um, in a really similar way, if not the exact same way that you might use an intact limb. And one of the issues that we're still trying to tackle is how, what's the best way to get somebody to really use this device as if it was a part of their natural body. And so one thing we can do is measure embodiment. And going back to your point just a second ago about what happens if you, you know, threw a basketball up or, you know, you said, hey, don't touch that, that's hot. Um, you can actually get somebody to begin to, you can get them to embody this prosthetic limb and essentially they start feeling as if it's part of themselves. And so then um, if you were to take a hammer and try to hit this prosthetic hand, their immediate reaction would be to move back because they've started to incorporate it into their own bodies. And so they almost feel as if you, if you hit that prosthetic hand really hard, you're going to, to damage myself. Um, so it's a really interesting um, thing that we're still trying to study and figure out. Well, so right now, uh, when someone wears a prosthetic, do they need to do physical therapy where they, it helps them to embody the prosthetic or do they need just more yeah. mechanical type work? Um, there, well, there's, there's a lot of therapy that goes, goes into it. There's, um, there's a, a really large clinical side to this type of work. And I, I predominantly live, or I predominantly work on the engineering aspects of it, you know, the sensors and the hardware, um, things like that. But there is a ton of time and therapy that goes into working with an individual to make sure that they're um, equipped with the right device to do the things that they need to do on a day-to-day -day basis and to make sure that that device is working properly and um, is, is exactly what they need. And so that's 
uh, also a large component of this type of work. And I'm not as involved with that, um, but it, it definitely, there, there are lots of brilliant people that are working on that aspect of it. So what's the most important, so what are you working on specifically? What, uh, what's lacking right now in prosthetic limbs and what are you doing to improve them? Yeah, so when I, um, so let me give you a little bit of background real quick. So I went to Johns Hopkins University um, and I was in the biomedical engineering department and I was a graduate student there. So while I was in graduate school, I was working with a professor named Natish Tekor and we developed a flexible electronic skin. We called it an e-dermis that can go over the fingers of a prosthetic hand and measure things like pressure. You know, if you're, if you're using the hand to pick up an object, uh, it can now feel what it is you're picking up and how hard you're grabbing. So that, that in itself is pretty interesting. And then on top of that, we started to look at how we could actually get that signal back to an amputee so that they could feel something. And so there's a lot of engineering that goes into developing a system like this. And most of the work we did on this was in developing the e-dermis to behave a lot like your natural skin might behave, and then figuring out what's the best way to stimulate the nerves of an amputee so that they actually feel something. And so since then, uh, I graduated and I started working at another within another part of Johns Hopkins University called the Applied Physics Lab. And here I'm a postdoctoral researcher and we're still asking some of the same types of questions. Essentially, how do we take some information from the outside world, something like touch, and give it back to an amputee so that they can feel it? And it's really interesting because this is a pretty big gap in terms of what's available on the market. Um, I don't think there are any commercial devices that have the ability to provide some type of sensation back to the user. So this, I mean, this would lead to, I guess, haptic feedback or haptic feedback is the feeble but improving uh, way for people to get sensory information. Yeah, there's a couple of different strategies. Um, When you think about haptic feedback, generally, um, so this is, you know, maybe some of the semantics stuff regarding this type of work, you you could do what we would call haptic or vibration or vibrotactile feedback, which would be something like um, if you took the, you know how your cell phone buzzes when you get a text or something like that, you, right. you could take a little vibrating motor that's inside that and you could attach it to the skin. And then I could say, okay, if my prosthetic hand grabs something and the harder it presses, the more I'm going to vibrate that disc. And you, and you generally would feel that wherever you put that little vibrating motor. So maybe you put it on your shoulder or on your bicep, something like that. Um, there's another strategy, which is a little, a little bit more challenging, and that's to actually electrically stimulate the nerves themselves that are in the arm so that what an amputee is feeling is an actual sensation of touch in their phantom fingers. So just a moment ago, we had talked about the phantom limb perception. We can actually use that to our advantage to say, okay, if the prosthetic finger is touching something, 
I'm going to try to figure out how to stimulate your nerves so that you feel a similar sensation in your finger, even though you don't actually have that finger. So it's a really interesting way of trying to um, create a prosthetic limb that's a little bit more lifelike in the sense that whatever is happening at the fingers of the prosthetic hand are actually also happening in the fingers of the phantom hand. So are you able to make people feel like they have a, a limb or a finger that they don't have at all? Yeah, and most of the time they are able to feel those fingers anyway, uh, just because of this phantom limb sensation. But what we're doing is getting them to feel specific sensations on top of that. So I think the way to describe it might be you have some sensation or feeling of the phantom hand in general. So let's say you're wearing a prosthetic arm and ideally where the physical, the, the prosthetic hand is, you kind of feel as if your phantom hand is in about the same space. Um, that, that doesn't always happen, but let's assume. And then what we would do is try to give them a sensation of pressing, for instance, on one of their fingers when that same finger of the prosthetic hand touched an object. So they can still feel their phantom hand and then we stimulate, then they begin to feel sensations of say pressure in the hand in addition to what they were feeling already. So it's, it's a way of um, kind of taking advantage of what they are able to already perceive and then tying that to some functional stimulation in the sense that it has meaning and has, there's some information that goes along with that activity. Are you able to enhance people's uh, sense of touch in general beyond what's, you know, what's normal? Uh, not, not yet. And, and I don't, um, so the, the type of work we do is focused a lot on, or it's focused primarily on, restoration and um, specifically for, you know, improving health and well-being in general. So at this point, we're really focusing on restoring sensations. Um, and it, it's interesting because the ability to adjust somebody's um, maybe sensitivity has a little bit more to do with the types of nerves that were developed. Um, so I think at this point, really what we're targeting is trying to get back to some level of functionality that was lost. You know, I, I can imagine there's some people who are beginning to explore that type of, you know, what comes next? Can you go beyond what we're normally able to do? Right. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, interesting question to think about what might happen in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Well, what's the, um, uh, so, what are some of the other challenges with prosthetics? It's, I guess, accurately feeling or feeling something or feeling anything. And then um, what about the fit of the prosthetic or is that really not your area or like what, what? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues, you know, it's kind of, there's a, there's a heaping mound of, you know, potential challenges that we have yet to overcome. Um, I, I don't focus as much on the, the socket interface, you know, how it physically attaches to the amputee, but there are some really interesting developments in 
what's called osseointegration, which basically means that instead of wearing a, a socket, which you can think of a lot like a shoe, you know, you, you put your shoe on your foot um, and you know, it covers your foot and it's kind of sitting there all day. Um, sometimes you get sweaty or you walk around too much and your feet start to hurt. The, the traditional way of attaching a prosthetic arm to an amputee is using what's called a socket. And that's basically a rigid structure that goes over the, the residual limb that, you know, the residual limb being the part of their arm that's left. And it's just kind of sitting there. And then you attach the prosthesis that's pretty heavy and you get, um, sometimes you can get some uncomfortable loading effects. You know, maybe if you're reaching up over your head or trying to reach down to tie your shoe, the socket may change how it's attached and fitting onto your arm. But that's the traditional way. There's this new, relatively new technique, you know, within the past um, maybe decade here in the U.S., called osseointegration. And that's where they put a titanium rod directly into your bone. And then it protrudes outside of your residual limb. And then you can attach the prosthesis directly to that. So what happens is you have this really uh, solid connection between the prosthetic arm and your skeleton. And so a lot of those, the issues that come with um, uncomfortable loading and having weight attached to your arm all day, um, it's, it's alleviated in some sense because you're now physically attaching it essentially to your bone, to your skeleton. So you don't have a lot of pressure on maybe the fleshy parts of your skin, which can be uncomfortable, cause irritation and things like that. So back to the sensory part of this, what's the gap, you know, how much, uh, how good is your sensory apparatus versus a person's native limb? Yeah, it's it's a it's a lofty lofty standard. I'll just say that you know, comparing to what uh, humans are capable of perceiving and feeling with their fingers. I mean, you can you can grab ten different coffee cups, each with a slightly different texture and temperature, and you can you know feel these really minute differences if you're using. Um, an intact hand, right? And you have healthy receptors in the skin because if you if you took a little peek inside the skin, inside your skin, you would see that there's thousands and thousands of receptors just within your hand. And each one of these receptors carries information from our outside world to up into our brain. And that's how we feel and perceive things. So that's how we perceive things. Uh, what we've created with the e-dermis is it tries to mimic some of those receptors. Uh, the tricky part, though, is that we have so many in our actual skin that it's a little tricky to build so many into, you know, some device that we've engineered. But what we did do, which I think is pretty clever, is looked at how those different receptors are layered in the skin. So you can if you if you took a little cross section of our of healthy skin you would see that up near the top of your skin you have what are called nociceptors and those are what tell us um those those give us information about pain so if you're touching something sharp and pointy 
those types of receptors are the ones that, that are active. And then if you go a little bit deeper in the skin, you have what are called mechanoreceptors. And the mechanoreceptors tell us things like, how hard are you pressing? Or, you know, is, is this surface rough or is it smooth? So what we did with the edermis that's really interesting is we had multiple layers and one of those layers was representing the nociceptors. It was, if you're touching something painful, these guys are gonna be the ones that are activated. And on the lower, uh, lower layers of the edermis, that's where we had our artificial mechanoreceptors. So it's not perfect because we're not able to capture every aspect of human touch, but we were able to have these two layers, one that detects pain, and one that detects something like pressure. And we were able to use that to differentiate between grabbing an object that's really sharp and pointy versus something that's nice and rounded like an egg. What do you think would be a better result to get really good at the touch portion and the pressure and the temperature and all that, you know, not be there or have a little bit of each, a little bit of pressure a little bit of temperature, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and, and that's a really good good comment because where we are in terms of the research is trying to figure out what is the most useful type of information to give somebody. So, if, you know, if we think about this in the context of amputees and wearing a prosthetic limb, we want to we don't want to necessarily give somebody a ton of information on the sensory side that they're not necessarily going to use or need. And even if you think about it, you, as we stand around or sit in a chair, we can feel the weight of our body, but we don't really think about it. But if a little bug was to crawl across your skin, you would notice it right away. And what's happening is that our bodies are really good at tuning out the background noise that we know might not necessarily be important at that time. But when we have change, then that's something that we tend to notice, such as a really small bug that crawls across your skin. Even though the bug doesn't weigh any weigh very much compared to the weight of your own body, our the, the receptors in our skin are able to pick that up and our brain focuses on that right away because that's something that's new and different. So Going back to the prosthetic limb case, a big question that we're still trying to figure out is what exactly, what type of information do we need to be using or what do we need to be sending back to the amputee so that they feel something? And then let's see if we can figure out how they use that. You know, maybe, maybe they don't care as much that they're grabbing something this hard versus that hard. Maybe they really want to know uh, when do I touch an object or when do I let it go? When is there this drastic change of events? Um, so those are the types of questions that we're still trying to figure out. And I'm very fortunate because I'm in a position here at APO where we still get to ask those types of questions and try to, to try to research them. Okay. Yeah, I was just picturing, um, I don't know, somehow uh, figuring out what kind of sensory input, for instance, goes into the eye and, you know, wearing like a mechanical eye on my back as a third eye or, you know, in another spot. So I was just wondering where this technology can go. Yeah, I I think it's really 
exciting because it could go to a lot of places. Like you mentioned, you know, what happens if you, if you get a third eye or what do we, what would we need to do to start providing um, more sensory information for you to see things or hear things or feel things. Um, and it's, it's a really fascinating intersection between engineering and biology and also, you know, neuroscience, where it's what, what's the brain doing in all of this? How is the brain processing this information? And once it receives something, what, is, what does that mean to us as humans? You know, can we use it to our advantage? Do we just ignore it? Um, so it's a really, uh, I think it's a really great time to be doing research in this area because we've gotten to the point where a lot of the engineering and technology has enabled us to start asking some of these questions that we may have not even thought about you know, 10, 20 years ago. Actually, what's the, um, what do we have the, the least amount of sensory um, recruitment for? I don't know what, do, what the term would be, but is it right. temperature? Is it pressure? Is it heat? Like, you know, if we were going to replicate a hand, what's the lowest hanging fruit to replicate to the degree to which we experience it? Is it pressure, temperature? You know, what would that be that's easiest? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a tricky question. I don't, I don't want to say any easy because they're all, they're all uniquely difficult. Um, but I will say that we have, we have a lot more um, receptors that kind of give us information about pressure and vibration, and those are pretty sensitive. Those respond really quickly. When you look at something like temperature. Um, those tend to be a little bit slower, and I don't know if we have as many receptors that have that. I'm not sure. I'd have to look up. Um, but basically, the if you think about temperature, it's a very um, not it's not very well refined sensation. You know, you can feel hot versus cold, um, but your ability to feel, you know, is this hot? hotter than this thing, you know, you being able to tell the difference between that might be a little bit harder than you being able to tell the difference between how hard you're grabbing one thing versus another thing. So I think in terms of complexity, you know, maybe, maybe temperature uh, might be a little bit more straightforward. I, I think, you know, I, I can't be certain. I imagine that once we start exploring, we're going to be hit with a whole bunch of uh, you know, things that we hadn't thought about, which is, you know, honestly, part of the, one of the great things about doing research is that you're constantly surprised. Um, but one thing that I, I think is really cool that we were able to do was um, basically model the difference between something that was painful or not painful. And we didn't, you know, we weren't able to um, dig or go a lot deeper within that, but basically what we showed is that you can give somebody some sensory information to elicit uh, some type of discomfort. And that's actually really useful if you think about it from uh, the perspective of how we use pain, especially tactile pain in our daily lives. And we use it as a way to protect our bodies and to basically let us know that something we're doing or interacting with is potentially damaging or harmful to our bodies. Um, and so in a way that's almost like, yeah, maybe that's the lowest 
not the lowest, but maybe that's a really interesting place to start because now we can say, okay, this object is safe to interact with, or maybe you're touching this object and you're not paying attention and you damage your prosthetic hand, but you don't necessarily feel it. I think there's some value or there's some advantage to being able to convey um, that type of information of something being painful or not painful. Um, and that's just maybe a very gross example, gross in the sense that it's, it covers a lot of air, you know, a wide range and doesn't necessarily do justice to a lot of the nuanced aspects of it, but it's a really interesting place to start. Yeah, the reason I ask is maybe you're able to um, give heat and cold perception above and beyond what we can normally do in a hand, and somehow that compensates for other function or what's it like to experience a hand that has like 10 times the amount of heat versus cold or temperature gradient uh, ability to feel. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I think maybe a, a, a really cool example of where we might be able to use this in the near future would be um, in, say you have an autonomous robot that's exploring some dangerous environment. Maybe, I don't know, let's say there's a robot that is built to go inside a burning building and it has sensors that exceed the capabilities of the human skin. So it's able to perceive in a way temperatures at a much finer scale or beyond the range that a normal human would be able to perceive. Um, so you can imagine a scenario where we have some robot that goes into an environment that maybe a human can't go in or it's too dangerous for humans to go in because we don't know what's in there just yet. Um, and then think of it as like a super robot that's able to perceive things at a slightly better sensitivity and outside the normal range that the human might be able to just to really try and understand what the environment is like. Um, so yeah, it might be a really interesting first step along, you know, along that direction. Yeah. Well, very good. What's, what's your projection? How many years of work is it going to take to get to uh, something close to the you know, the human hand in terms of either either feeling or pressure or other senses or all of them? Yeah, I, I don't know. I want to be optimistic and say 15 years, right? That's, a, that's an optimistic guess. I, I think there are challenges with this that we could tackle in the near term, um, specifically in figuring out ways to provide stimulation in the correct way to produce natural perception. Um, I think there are a couple of big hurdles that remain before we get to 100% completely all natural sensation, um, specifically for amputees. And I think one of those is being able to access all of the nerves in the arm. So after an amputation, the, the sensory nerves are still there, but they might not necessarily be connected to anything. So one challenge is if we want to stimulate the nerves to get somebody to feel something, we really ideally it'd be nice to be able to connect to every single nerve fiber and have the ability to stimulate each one in a unique way so that we could exactly match what you would expect to see in biology. You know, what happens in your nerves for somebody who has an intact limb if they touch an object. And we have thousands and thousands and thousands of the nerves, of these nerves running through our arms. 
So from a from an engineering point of view, there's still um, there's still a few challenges that remain to be able to get to that point. So we'll see. I'm very fortunate to be in a position that I get to research, do this really interesting research, and ask these really fascinating questions. So hopefully, um, it's something that we can achieve uh, within you know the next couple of decades. So. Uh, if I if I do my job well, hopefully we'll get there a little bit sooner. Okay, that's great. Well, Luke, what's the best way for people to find out more and to follow up? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. So um, I have a website. If you Google my name, Luke Osborne, um, I have a website you can check out. And there's a couple of example projects and things that I've worked on. There's also um, a really interesting paper that we published last year that that you can look for. It's called Prosthesis with Neuromorphic Multilayered Edermis Perceives Touch and Pain. Uh, there's also a link to it from my website. Um, and then you can also look up the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. There's a bunch of really interesting projects going on. Um, and, you know, even just beyond the, the prosthetic limb technology that we developed here, there's a lot of really other interesting stuff that people might find interesting. So, of course, I encourage everybody to kind of, kind of, look out for that very good well luke i appreciate you coming on the podcast richard thank you so much for having me you're listening to the future tech health podcast with richard jacobs until i reached age 40 i never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had has or will have them in the future Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.